You're listening to a Westpac Wire podcast. Westpacwire.com.au. I'm McGregor Duncan, the Chief Development Officer at Westpac. Today we're joined by David Morgan. David was the 28th CEO of Westpac from 1999 to 2008, having previously run Westpac's retail and institutional banks. Earlier in his career, he was a senior official at the Australian Treasury, where he advised Paul Keating on economic reforms that changed the face of the country. A recent biography was published titled David Morgan, An Extraordinary Life. He certainly has a unique perspective on many of the challenges facing Australia, and I'm delighted he's taken the time to join us. David, welcome. Delighted to be here, Mac. Many thanks. I want to spend the first part of the discussion on public affairs and public policy. Mm -hmm. After your PhD at the LSE and a brief stint at the IMF, you went to work at the Australian Treasury, where you had a firm hand in the floating of the dollar, Mm -hmm. uh, deregulating the financial services industry and reforming tax. So can can you start by telling us a bit about those times? Uh, which many of us think of as the high watermark of Australian public policy, where the nation faced into that backlog of reform uh, that we uh, that we needed. Are there any moments that stick out as particular achievements? Well, I think, uh, as you say, Mac, it was the golden age of economic policy reform, and I think both sides of politics uh, acknowledge that uh, these days. Um, and I think you've probably focused uh pretty sharply on what I saw as particular achievements, certainly the tax reform uh, of 1985, the the biggest tax reform in our post-war history, certainly uh, the floating of the dollar and, as you rightly say, also deregulating of the financial services industry, which was, you know, I would put as important as floating of the dollar. And thirdly, around budget consolidation, we went from 1986 and the Banana Republic and losing our AAA status, not least because of a yawning budget deficit to finish the decade with a a surplus of 2% of GDP and low and declining uh, government debt. Um, So those would be, I think, three achievements that have had a pretty uh, enduring value. Really was a fascinating time. And when you think about some of the key players uh, Paul Keating, obviously, but within the Treasury itself, Bernie mm-hmm. Fraser, Chris mm-hmm. Higgins, Ted Evans, Ken Henry, and then others like Don Russell in Keating's office and Bill Keldy at the ACTU. I mean, it really was an amazing collection of talent, uh, all educated at public high schools, mm-hmm. I think, uh, all in favour of a dynamic and entrepreneurial economy, but with a really decent set of underlying values and a commitment to the, to the broader society. And I might be wrong, but it feels today that the public service is not quite like that anymore. It's a little bit hollowed out. feels like there's not much vision, uh, even less a commitment to really wanting to change the place. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, Firstly, let me just pick up on those names uh, that you uh, have rightly cited, Mac, because it, it reflects for me a couple of lessons of life. Firstly, that individuals do matter in the course of our history. But probably secondly and more powerfully, teams matter. This was a great team of a handful of individuals, and we're certainly talking about less than 10, who liked each other, respected each other, trusted each other. And as you said, we had certain things in common. We all basically came from what might be termed uh, the wrong sides of the track. Um, and adversity early in life is uh, is a gift. I, I think it generates resilience and determination, but I think it also helps generate a sense of social justice. I remember the tax reform, we were, of course, very much uh, driven by a more efficient tax system, a more simple tax system, 
but we also shared a sense of outrage at the unfairness of the old tax regime. And fairness was a huge objective and one that was enhanced. Unfortunately, you are not wrong uh, about the public service. It has been hollowed out, and I think we've lost a priceless national asset. I've tried to play uh, a small role in uh, turning that around. I have uh, been a member of the Australian Public Service Review that was set up by uh, Malcolm Turnbull. And we have now completed our report, and I am looking forward to the uh, response by the government, which I expect by, by Christmas. It's not just the public service, is it? It sort of feels like it's a broader, uh, it's a broader societal issue. Uh, you know, when you look at politics and politicians, how do you compare the state of Australian politics today with, you know, the era uh, back in the in the nineteen eighties when you were involved? Right. So, I had the privilege of serving two great treasurers, John Howard and and Paul Keating. And there's no doubt there's been a decline in the quality of uh, our politicians. And that's a worldwide phenomenon, uh, Mac. I've uh, been living most of the last decade outside of Australia and working around the world. And you've seen it in the US, you've seen it in the UK, you've seen it in Italy, the same. It's a global phenomenon. And what's going on here? Again, I don't think there's any monocausal uh, explanation, but uh, certainly their remuneration relative to the private sector has declined, but I think much more importantly, the respect uh, that they're paid, the complete lack of respecting any privacy. They can never relax uh, with social media and we reap what we sow. I mean, I think if there's be any family, uh, it'd probably be the Morgan family. With My wife was a federal cabinet minister, uh, as, as you probably know, and I spent half my life as a bureaucrat. But we'd be hard pressed to look at our children in the eye now and say, go into politics, go into the bureaucracy. That's, um, you know, that's your best and highest use in society because of these reasons. And yet the challenges today are just as great, yes. surely, as they were back in the 1980s. Yes. If you look at climate change or infrastructure, yes. superannuation, our challenges around low productivity and low growth. Um, and frankly, even the way I think we build our buildings today, I mean, there's, there's so little thought about the future and it feels, we, it feels like we have too high a discount rate on the future. Um, shouldn't the interests of future generations hold greatest sway on our calculations, which means perhaps we should invest more in the future or at least prioritise differently? Uh, I agree with that. I think there's far too much short-termism, Mac. Uh, the, the 724 news cycle uh, and social media encourages that. Um, at a minimum, I would like longer parliamentary terms. Uh, I think uh, a three-year term for federal government is uh, shamelessly short. Um, all the states now have four years. Um, UK has a fixed five-year term. Also about the long term, Mac, I think it also goes back to your point you made about the public service. In, in a career public service, there was a long-term institutional memory. And there was a feeling uh, part of the ethos was we are not there simply to serve whoever might have a short-term majority in the House of Parliament. We were there for the longer term for the government of the day, yes, but also for the Australian Parliament as a whole, including the minorities, and for future generations. And I think with the decline of the APS that has been part of this contribution to, as you say, uh, underinvestment in, in, in the interests of future generations. So if you, if you were to find yourself, you know, back at Treasury as the Secretary of the Department in 2020, or let's say you even found yourself at the Lodge, uh, you know, what are the two or three priorities that you would focus on, policy priorities? Uh, 
let me just stick to Treasury <laughs> lest I uh, get way out of my uh, out of my uh, depth uh, on the Treasury. I think a few things. Um, uh, certainly, I think there's a case for a further round of tax reform. Uh, it's now 35 years since the one I led. Quite can't quite believe that, but it is. Uh, and Ken Henry, who I had the privilege of. Recruiting to Treasury uh, completed a fine review on the back of uh, the uh, 2020 uh, conference uh, that Kevin Rudd set up, uh, and I chaired the future of the Australian economy on that. Competition policy, um, productivity really matters, and competition is the is the engine of growth. And as we've just been discussing, I would rejuvenate the Australian public service uh, as a source of policy expertise in a longer-term view. So, David, you left the Treasury and joined Westpac in 1990, I think. What were your first thoughts when you arrived at Westpac? I think Bob Joss said famously, where are all the women? Uh, can you recall your initial impressions and how did it compare to an environment like the Treasury? So, uh, again, I can, Mac, and um, I don't want to be unfair, but they were pretty unflattering initial impressions. I found it to be... Uh, very political, uh, very blokey, uh, non-meritocratic, a lot of cronyism, anti-intellectual and and hubristic. Uh, that sounds unflattering, but uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's unfair. Uh, so pretty damning indictment, it, uh, sounds, yeah. it sounds like. I want to pick up on that anti-intellectual uh, uh, comment because I get the strong sense that both you and Bob Joss really changed the culture at Westpac. Obviously, both had PhDs. Mm. Uh, you both had a strong interest in public policy. So you introduced a lot more discipline around the business, of course, but you also gave the bank a stronger identity on things like sustainability and its contribution to society, which I think persists today with Brian Hartz's vision around a service revolution. Did you see your primary role as CEO to change that culture that you've just referenced? So uh, let me just go back to your point about Bob Joss and I. Yeah, we, we really did have a lot in common, uh, including a deep respect for... Um, learning and expertise um, and a strong interest in public policy. Um, but I guess my early priority was uh, just to survive, uh, for, for Westpac to survive, because we had a near-death experience in the early 90s and I was running two-thirds of the bank in my third year. By the time I came CEO, uh, I certainly had uh, a mission around sustainability uh, to which I uh, summarized as as to manage broad, manage long, and manage to a consistent set of values. And value certainly goes to the culture. Uh, managing and leading broad goes to we're there for four constituencies, not one, not just shareholders, but for customers um, and uh, the community um, uh, and the employees, and to manage for the long term, not the short term. Uh, banking is a is a long-term game and uh, should be run for the long-term, not the short-term. I think those. I think it's fair to say that those values persist today in the company. I mm -hmm. think you know you ought to be rightfully proud of having uh, played an important role in instilling those values mm -hmm. inside the company. Uh, you took Westpac uh, from outside the top 50 banks uh, in the world and left it sitting comfortably inside the top 20, I think. Mm -hmm. That's obviously a remarkable achievement. But is there any one thing when you look back, is there one thing that you wish you'd 
done differently. I'm sort of, especially post Royal Commission, I'm thinking, uh, do you look back and say, well, maybe, you know, maybe the bank was over levered in pursuit of returns. Maybe we didn't focus enough on the customer. Is there, is there anything you reflect back on? So, uh, <laughs> always talking to former CEOs, you, you've got to be aware of them being overly defensive about their record. But I actually do believe in 2008, we were um, properly customer focused, had record employee commitment, take, lifted the proportion of women in management from 25 to 43 based on merit, not on quotas. Uh, and we were a number one bank in the world rated for sustainability for the majority of my tenure. tenure. So how did we get from there to, um, to the, what the Royal Commission? I think there was a big change and I think that was driven largely by three events. Firstly, and most importantly, the global financial crisis, which just was the biggest shock to the financial system in 60 years and just, of course, caused management, as I would have done in their shoes, to refocus on financial and risk and capital imperatives and away from the customer and the community. Secondly, uh, FOFA, Future Financial Advice Act, which was brought in very quickly and all the banks were underprepared for. And then a really terrible, wrong-headed piece of legislation of so-called responsible lending. So I think three exogenous events hit the industry that meant we went, you know, a fair bit backwards from where we were in 2008. Did I make mistakes? Um, when I look back, you bet I did. And uh, one of the things uh, I've now for the last 10 years been on 11 boards as a non-executive and I would have treated my board better. There's nothing like <laughs> having empathy if you're sitting in that seat. But I am proud that the one thing that, that was a consistent mission of mine was that when the next big shock comes to the banking system, and I didn't know when that would be or what would cause it, but I did know Westpac would be second to none in terms of low risk and resilience for that shock, because then we would could do uncontested merger and acquisition. We could take a lot of market share. We could pick up a lot of great people from the market. And sure enough, 2008, Shock came after I left, and we had uncontested uh, takeover of St George, big increase in our market share, and we picked up great people. And I, I feel along with fabulous, fabulous teams that I had working for me, many of whom are now in the commanding heights of the Australian uh, financial sector, um, that we achieved that. Um, in the decades since you've left Westpac, obviously banking has continued to change. You just mentioned the Royal Commission. Uh, but what about technology? Uh, so you're an investor in a number of banks in your capacity as chair of the private equity firm JC Flowers. Mm -hmm. Has the pace of change surprised you? The pace of technology change surprised you uh, compared to what you'd predicted as CEO? And do you have views on how things like open banking or artificial intelligence or data may impact the way people bank in the future? So you're definitely right, Mac. The uh, velocity of change has accelerated. Uh, that said, I think this will continue to evolve at a rapid pace rather than overnight rev revolution. And I think for the better managed big banks, they will be able to incorporate these into their other existing assets, like a wonderful customer base, a lot of knowledge about their customer, rather than be wiped out by them. I remember just a year into my uh, tenure in 2000, you might remember it was the tech boom, uh, NASDAQ at record heights, and 
Uh, I was being told by pimply-faced analysts that Charles Schwab would be doing all the Westpac business in a few years' time, and we're an old bricks-and-mortar business. Indeed, Australia was a rust-bucket economy, and we went down to 47 cents against the dollar. I always felt that the better-managed banks would be able to take these and incorporate them into an operating model that levered off the other advantages. And I think that happened then, and I think it can happen again, but uh, it'll take a lot of good intelligent leadership and execution. Beyond banking, there's significant debate at the moment uh, around uh, where interest rates are headed uh, and the potential for Australia to join the QE club. Uh, what do you see as the big risks from low rates globally? So I, I think I've got a, a, a small amount of insight into this, having worked in, uh, amongst other countries, Japan for the last uh, uh, 10 years and also a lot in Western Europe. And I think there are a couple of big risks. One is um, big adverse effect on retail bank profitability. And profitability matters, Mac. Uh, you know, there's only one thing worse than a highly profitable banking sector, and that's an unprofitable banking sector. And we've seen that in Japan, and we've seen it in Western Europe, and that's something I'm determined to play my small role to remind our politicians. The other cost is around once deflationary expectations set in, Mac, and I've seen that in Japan, which has really had deflationary expectations since the big property bust in the late 80s, early 90s. And when you're expecting prices to continually decline, that postpones consumption spending, makes for very weak private demand, and that then gets pumped up, tried to compensate by public spending, but when it's long term like that, you get Japan's public debt now 250% of GDP. So I, I think those are two very real risks. David, you've obviously had an amazing career. Uh, you know, um, with all the opportunities ex that exist in the world today, what would you advise a young person starting out uh, to do with their life? Would you would you recommend that they get into banking? You'd mentioned earlier that you're not sure that you advise your own children to get into politics. How about how about banking and financial services? Banking, I I, I would absolutely recommend, Mac. I, I think it is a noble profession. I think banking are the arteries of our uh, of our economy, uh, and I've seen the benefits uh, to an economy and a society of a really healthy, well managed, profitable banking system like in Australia. And I've seen the costs of one ones at the other end of the spectrum in Japan and and Western and Western Europe. Uh, so I genuinely believe, uh, you know, a really good banking system can help all four stakeholders achieve their legitimate uh, uh, life objectives. And I should say, en passant, that having worked now uh, in in so many different countries, not dilettantishly as majority owner of banks in these, that Australia really does have a world class banking system, and that's worth fighting for and preserving. I want to change tack and finish with a few questions about your interests outside of banking and public policy. You're a child actor and, a, and a, an aspiring film director. Uh, you're an outstanding AFL footballer, although I think you've quoted Somerset Maugham that you are in the very front row of the second rate. Uh, and you've had a lifelong commitment to reading the arts and education. So uh, first question, I get the sense that the arts have had a profound impact on you mm -hmm. uh, and continues to play an important role in your own interior life. Mm. What's the one novel and one film and one piece of music that's had a, a meaningful impact on you? 
So in music, my tastes are pretty eclectic, but I did write my PhD listening to three vinyl records, uh, Brahms, uh, Four Symphonies, uh, his Violin Concerto and his Concerto for Violin and Cello. Uh, on my favourite film, it's probably uh, something that you will have never heard of called Funny Things Happen Down Under. It starred Olivia Newton-John and myself. <laughs> And it convinced myself uh, that I was a hopeless actor and it also taught me about the role of luck in life, given that out of that cast you would have never picked Olivia to go on to be a superstar. <laughs> and novel, can I push you on on a, a favourite novel or a favourite book? So uh, I am a bibliophile, so I collect rare books mm -hmm. uh, on Australian exploration and I read a lot of non-fiction um, uh, and particularly history, which I think is a good discipline for a banker to have. On fiction, I, I like all the novels of uh, Graham Greene uh, for the depth of his insights into human nature. Excellent choices indeed. Mm. And what's the best thing you've read or watched or listened to recently? Any recommendations for our listeners out there? Uh, so uh, I always have about four or five uh, books uh, by my uh, bed. Um, I am a sucker for Le Carre, and I've just finished The Night Manager, and I've just been given his new book by my wife, which I will devour, devour with, uh, with pleasure. Um, I mentioned you played Australian rules football, including a few games for Richmond. Mm. Um, so a question about sport then to finish off. Is there, is there anything that businesses can learn from elite sport? Uh, I definitely believe there is. Um, and one of them's around the power of teamwork. And uh, it is trite but true that a champion team will always beat a team of champions. I think some other more personal lessons I learned was do what you like and good at, not what you love. I loved Australian rules football, but unfortunately you quote me correctly that I was at the very front row of the second Raiders. Um, and I faced a fork in the road between continuing to try and pursue a full-time Australian rules career or going off to London School of Economics to do a PhD. And serendipitously, I, I chose that fork in the road, uh, which was another lesson of life about the benefits of uh, education at elite uh, universities, which you certainly know a lot about, and the power of learning and, and lifelong learning. You never, ever stop learning. That's terrific. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, uh, some fascinating insights that you've shared with us there, David. Thanks very much for taking the time. Thank you, Mac, and uh, really interesting and insightful uh, questions. So thank you for being such uh, an intrepid uh, interrogator. Thank you. That's all from us today at Westpac Wire. For more, head to westpacwire.com.au.